Praise God. That was awesome. Awesome, awesome. Grab a seat. Howdy. Howdy. How are we doing this morning? We are fast approaching the end of the semester, and I can feel it from your smiling faces. We're going, this is the end of the semester. Um, so fun. Hey, if you have a Bible, we're going to be finishing up Nehemiah to this morning. And um, we're going to announce it again later on, but just kind of a little heads up. Next week is actually going to be a worship and baptism service, and uh, we'll have given that opportunity. But if you have not been baptized and you would love to be a part of that kind of this next weekend, or this ne- yeah, this next weekend, please send uh, an email to um, Leslie Ru- or Lindsay Rugas, and she will email you out the forms and stuff, and we can get you in line for that this coming weekend. So that'll be really, really fun next week. So Nehemiah chapter 7 is where we're going to start. I'm going to read a little bit for us, and then we will dive in. Nehemiah chapter 7, starting in verse 1. Now when the wall had been built, and I'd set up the doors at the, and the gatekeepers and the singers, and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hananiah and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem. For he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are standing guard, let them shut shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some some in front of the other homes. The city gate was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. Verse 5. Then my God put it into my heart, to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first, and I found written in it. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you so much for this morning, an opportunity to worship you and and, and learn from you. And Lord, I pray that you would open up our hearts and minds to engage your word this morning. And Lord, we are going to be talking about what it looks like to be a spirit-led community. So I pray, Father, that we would be open to your word, we'd be open to your spirit, and that by, by the grace of your Son, you may empower us to live changed lives. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen. Watch this. Awesome, awesome. Life is better together, am I right? Rock, paper, scissors. It is better together. If you didn't pick up on that, that's what was being communicated. It took me a second time to watch that to figure that out. Okay. But it's better together. 
And we have been journeying through the book of Nehemiah, and we've been watching a man come to a community and not merely try to rebuild a wall, but rebuild a community, to be a community that is together. And we watched him rebuild the wall in literally 52 days. The wall had been broken down for 70 years, 13 years, it lied in ruin. And in 52 days, less than two months, he rebuilds the city wall around the entire city. But the work wasn't done. Not only did he have to rebuild the wall, he was also rebuilding a people. So we watched him journey to this place, gather the people together. And then the last real half of the book, the shift moves from focusing on rebuilding a wall to rebuilding a community. A community that would change culture. A community that would live different lives and impact the world for the sake of of God's kingdom. And in fact, it's this temple that gets rebuilt that Jesus is going to walk into later. So it's a big deal. And it's an exciting moment in the history of Israel. But if you've ever tried to build anything, you know it's challenging. My wife and I are building a house right now. Now I say we are building it. We are having it built. Um, I am not hammering things. So uh, they're at the process in, in a home building project where they have the roof, the walls. They have all the plumbing run, all the electrical run. So this is a very exciting point. And they delivered uh, upon pallets, stone, and brick to put on the outside of the home. And so we're just kind of waiting for that moment when masons will come in and rebuild the outside of the house. Here's where the bricks are going to go. Here's where the stone's going to go. If you ever get to build a house, it's a very exciting part of the process. And so we're just waiting there, excited. And excited about the fact that some guy with skill that I don't possess is going to like hammer on rocks and hammer on on clay uh, bricks and form them together to make this beautiful home. I mean, he's going to put all of these lifeless stones together to hold this house together. And it's a lot easier, not, not uncomplicated, but a lot easier to do that with lifeless stones. But what Nehemiah is trying to do now is to put living stones together. To put living stones together that move. And here's the problem with living stones. Living stones talk back. Living stones have opinions. Living stones uh, have Opinions on where they want to be on the wall, right? Where they want to do, what they want to do, what they want to be engaged in. In fact, when you're putting living stones together, it's actually more like posing for a group photo, right? So this summer, some of you got friends that are going to get married, right? Anyone have friends that are going to get married this summer? Mm-hmm. It'll be 120 degrees, and that couple will decide we're going to do an outdoor wedding, right? Or at least you're going to take pictures outdoors because they're prettier, you know. And so you're going to go to that outdoor scene. And so the bride and her 500 besties are all going to be there. And they're going to need to take a photo. And there will be one person, one photographer standing on one side of that group. And she is going to be shouting orders or he's going to be shouting orders saying, Hey, you five, sorority squat to the side. Boom, right? You need to turn this way. You squat down, too tall. You too short, get forward. And she's going to be putting all these people in place and then she's going to attack like five or six photos and then she's going to stop and look at the bride. She's like, why are you sweating, bride? Okay, someone dabbed the makeup off her, not the groom. No, you're just smearing it. Okay, it's all going bad. Makeup person, get here, redo. Okay, set, squat, move, perfect. And then she'll take five or six photos of that shot to try to get the perfect photo and then swap faces to make it perfect. Why is it so hard? Because living stones move. And when you're trying to build a community to change culture, 
putting living stones together is hard. And what we see in this moment, at the end, the last kind of runway into the end of uh, the book of Nehemiah, are five pieces that need to be present in any community. Five pieces that have to be built in the community to form and fit the stones together well. And the five pieces are simply this, that you need to be organized, biblical, repentant, accountable, and poured out. And these are true with any Christian community. Any Christian community that you're involved in has to have these five pieces in order for the stones, the living stones, to be fit together. And the first thing we see in chapter 7, verse 1, is that the community needed to be first organized, which might surprise you. If you look at chapter uh, 7, verse 5, we see it. That the Lord my God put into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of genealogy of those who came first, and I found these names written in it. And literally, it's a roll call of all the Jews. If you're looking for baby names later on, here's your opportunity to pick out a random baby name. Now, I'm not going to go through the roll call. Thank you, Kevin, for not doing that. It's like reading the Hebrew phone book. I'm not going to do that. But what's so interesting is that Nehemiah took this moment to figure out who everyone was and to organize each one of these people. And I love the phrase that precedes the organization. It says this, the Lord put it into my heart. Now, just I want you to think for a moment. If someone says to you, hey, God has led me to do this, or I feel like God is telling me to do this, when they say that, what do they typically mean? I would say they typically mean this, that it's a spontaneous intervention of God. I see with leaders all the time, they're gonna, I'm like, are, are you ready to lead like small group Bible study this week? And they're like, yeah, you know, I didn't really have time to prepare, but you know, the Spirit's going to lead me. And what that means is, I didn't plan. Or someone says, you know, stands up in front of people like, yeah, yeah the Spirit's just going to lead me in that. And what that means is, I didn't think it through, I'm going to wing it and then attach Spirit-led to it, right? You've seen that? I hear that all the time, but what's so crazy is that it says God put it into his heart to make a database. God inspired him to create spreadsheets. It was God ordained that he would make lists and skills and assign people different roles all in the city. It's so crazy that the spirit of God led him to be organized. And the truth is this, God does this type of thing all the time. Look at Genesis 1. The Spirit of God is hovering over the surface of the water. And you see God begin to create. And you see that he puts the luminary bodies in place. He, he forms the different major pieces that are all going to be at play. And then he fills those forms. So he creates the sun, the moon, the stars, the earth. And as the earth is there formless and void, he speaks and life is created. The Trinity creates life and he organizes it. So he makes fishies and birdies, and then mammals, and they all have their crews that they run with. He's going to make mountains so that goats can thrive and jump up the mountains. He's going to make long plains, and we'll call them in Australia, and he's going to put odd creatures that we won't discover for a long, long time. We'll call them wallabies and kangaroos, and they're going to hop free, and he looks at everything and says, this is good and well-planned. And not only in creation, Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 14, 33. 
that the spirit is not a spirit of disorder, but order. See, there's something that God knows that every leader needs to know. That people are best utilized when they're organized. If I want to utilize a community, I need to know what they can do. Because it's when they're organized, I can know that who needs to be cared for, and everyone needs to know their role. If people are going to be best utilized, they have to be organized. And so at the beginning of this, Nehemiah makes a big chart and sees where everyone is, where all their gifts are, and where they can be utilized best. And some of them don't have homes, and so that's part of the plan. Let's get these people houses when they move in. I was reading an article in Harvard Business Review. I'm sure you're reading it earlier today. By uh, Liz Wiseman and Greg McGowan. And they write it this way. Some leaders drain all the intelligence and capability out of their teams because they need to be the smartest, most capable person in the room. These managers often shut down the smarts of others, ultimately stifling the flow of ideas. You know these people because you've worked for them. These leaders, we call them diminishers, underutilized people and leave creativity and talent on the table. At the other extreme are leaders who, as capable as they are, care less about flaunting their own IQs and more about fostering a culture of intelligence in their organizations. Under the leadership of these multipliers, that's the key, multipliers, employees don't feel smarter, they become smarter. So if you want to be a good leader of an organization, people need to be organized to know that you care, and secondly, to know how to use them. One of the leaders of Pixar, a guy named Ed Catmell, who is leading the Pixar industry, creating all sorts of amazing movies like Toy Story, Monsters, Inc., all sorts of stuff. He has a book called Creative, Inc. And he writes this. The way I see it, my job as a manager is to create a fertile environment to keep it healthy and watch for the things that undermine it. I believe to my core that everybody has the potential to be creative, whatever form they that creativity takes, and that to encourage and develop, and de- that encourage and de- such development is a noble thing. I love that. His view as a leader is my, my role is to organize people and utilize their talents to the best of their ability, and it's when we do that, people thrive. It's when we see people's skill sets and, 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 and hone them in and, and it's when people thrive, when they can use their gifts for the glory of God. When I first started working at Grace in the youth ministry, this is a major area where I failed. I was kind of a ready, fire, aim guy, loved to go by the seat of my pants and the people underneath me all said the same thing unanimously. Kevin, I wish you more clearly described what you want from me and clearly put me in a place to thrive in there, that environment. I wish you were clear and better organized. If you want a community that changes the world, it's got to be organized. Anyone been to a passion conference? A couple of you. It's crazy organized. It's amazing. You walk in, they give you different memorabilia. This is where your group you're going to go in. This is who's going to play. These are the different venues. They went across three different major venues, over 60,000 people your age there. And you're like, look at this and go, how are you able to pull this off? You were organized in your entire endeavor. 
Someone's organized. But secondly, biblical. Biblical. Chapter 8, verse, verse 1, says this way. All the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra, the scribe. Now, Ezra was the guy who helped rebuild the temple of God before Nehemiah got there some 13 years earlier. To bring out the book of the law of Moses and the Lord had commanded it, that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly, both men, women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And they read it facing from the square before the water gate from early morning until midday. That's from like 7 a.m. all the way until noon or 1. In the presence of the men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. So not only does Nehemiah organize them, secondly, he has the Bible read to them. He gathered everyone together. And if you number it, it's about 50,000 people that are now in the city at this point. And they stick Ezra literally on on like a a podium, like a stage. And he stands there from 7 a.m. until noon and literally reads the law of God to the people. Why? Because Nehemiah knows something that all of us know. That the word of God changes people. So they had preaching. But not only did they have preaching, secondly, jump down to verse 5. Ezra opened up the book in the sight of all the people. For he was above the people and he was opened it to... Um, opened it to all, all the people. And Ezra blessed the Lord and gave thanks. And jump down to verse 7. Also, Jeshua, Benai, Shembiah, and other names helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. You know what they did? They preached, and they had small groups. They gave the word up so that everyone could hear, and then they had other people coming in and, and organizing, like, I don't know, table host groups, I don't, something like that. And, and they would talk about what was taught. They heard the word of God, and then they gathered together in smaller communities to discuss what they were learning. It's foundational that people that are shaped by, that can shape culture are first shaped by the word of God. They constantly devoted themselves first to the word of God. I love the words of Charles Spurgeon. He says this, Oh, that you and I might get into the very heart of the word of God and get that word into ourselves. As I have seen a silkworm eat into the leaf and consume it, so ought we do with the word of God. Not crawl over its surface, but eat right into it till we have taken it into our innermost parts. See what he's saying? Digest it. Get the word of God into you. So let me ask you, is the word of God in you? Do you consume it? Are you reading it for yourself? Are you you taking in the words of God and letting it hit you in the innermost parts? He then talks about John Bunyan, and I'm just going to read one piece of this quote at the very end of it. He says, I want to talk about John Bunyan, and I'll tell you this about him. Prick him anywhere. His blood is bibline. The very essence of the Bible flows from him. He cannot speak without quoting a text, for it is his very soul, is the word of God. I commend his example to you, beloved. When people talk about you, do they see the word of God flowing in you 
and through you. If they were to prick your blood, would it bleed Bible? If we were to look at your tweets, would we say, their tweets are bibline? Or would they say, "Mm, (laughs) maybe something else? The community that changes culture is a word that's saturated in the word of God. And they do that through preaching and community. Thirdly, it's a community that's repentant. Chapter 9 says it this way. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins of their fathers. Not only did they hear the word of God, they let the word of God hit them. In chapter 8, they're about to start mourning and repenting, and, and Nehemiah goes, no, 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 just celebrate this moment. Celebrate that we're hearing the word of God, every one of us. And then he says, okay, now it's time to repent. Now it's time to let the word hit you. And here's what happens when you spend time reading the word of God. The word of God in Hebrews forces it this way. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates to divide soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart. When you get in the word, it gets into you and it shapes you. And when you stand before a holy God and read his word, immediately you'll become convicted. It happens to every one of us. You'll read it and go, I don't measure up to that standard. I I don't live up to that. And when you feel that, when you sense that, That's when you confess that. Lord, I'm not who I should be. I am broken and I am not perfect. We're trying to potty train our son right now. He's two and a half. And a couple months ago, he would have this standard protocol. Uh, It'd be early morning, probably like nine or 10 o'clock. Some of that's really early for some of you. Um, And so he would eat breakfast and then he would go stand by himself, like on a side against a wall. And he would just stand there for a while. And we're like, what's the matter, buddy? What are you doing? And he's like, nothing. All right, man, well, come out and play when you're, when you're ready. And he'd come over and this odor would waft over us. and be like, buddy, did you, did you duke in your pants, man? What's going on? And he'd, and he would say this, no. I'm like, buddy, then someone snuck into your diaper and did something to you because you smell horrible. And he'd be like, no, he's, he'd hold to his guns. And a couple weeks later, uh, he'd be standing over by the corner, and we clued into this. Like, he's needing to drop a deuce. So we knew what he was doing, and so we were trying to cut him off at the pass, right? We're like, buddy, hey, we know what you're doing. Hey, how about you come to go potty right over here? It's going to be awesome. We'll give you a cookie. We'll give you a a trip to Disneyland. We'll give you a whatever you want if you just go to the potty. And, And he'd stand there, and he'd be like, no, I'm fine. I'm like, buddy, are you sure? He's like, no. And then his brothers and sisters would get in on the action. Like, come on, Jesse, go to the potty, go to the potty. And he'd go, go away. And he would stand there and poop. It'd be like, Jesse, did you just do another one in your diaper? And, he, and he'd be like, no. But recently, like the past, I don't know, three weeks, month, he started to own it. So he'll go off to the side and we'll go, Jesse, are you going to poop? And, and he'd say, yes. And I'm like, well, you want to go in the potty? Mm-mm. Well, at least we got this far, right? At least we got to confession. At least you're owning, like, your mess, all right? At least we all know this. And that's the first step, right? Ownership 
is step one, right? I do have a problem. So confession is crucial, and it's not crucial for God. God knows our mess, but it's crucial for us. I remember a little while ago, um, I, was, uh, I was helping a couple going through some like relational struggles. And they came in and they, they said, hey, here's, here's the things that we're going through. Like, here's some of our struggles. And they start telling me. And I said, hey, man, I, I'm so glad you were honest with that. I'm so glad you opened up with that. Those, that's a lot of stuff. Like, I'm, I'm so glad you were, uh, you were open with some of those things. And, and I said, okay, well, here's what we need to do to stop some of those activities from, from continuing. And then they looked at me like I was crazy. And they said, well, I thought if we were just real with you, it would be enough. And I'm like, yeah, you really need to change. And so being real is great for step one. But it doesn't stop there. So if you already come to me for premarital counseling and you have issues, which we all do, those people will step in and say not only do confession is crucial, but it's not enough. You also need accountability. And the fourth piece we see is that Nehemiah himself holds these people accountable. He moves into their life and says, okay, these are the areas that, that need to change in us. And in chapter 13, what we see is that Nehemiah went away for a little while and then he comes back to the people and he sees all sorts of issues. I'm not going to read it for time's sake, but there's three issues that he addresses. Their money in chapter 13, verse 10. Their worship in chapter 13, verse 15 and 16. And their marriage in chapters 13, 23 through 27. And I'll tell you this, if you want to annoy some people, just pick these three to press on on people, right? Talk about their money, talk about how they worship, and then talk about their relationships that they can engage in. And what's so crazy is that is exactly the three pieces that Jesus hit on. To the rich young ruler, he said this, go sell all of your possessions and then come and follow me. To people's marriage, to the Pharisees, he says, look, you can't just divorce a woman just because you feel like it on your whim. She's to be honored by God. You you stick it out even when it's hard. God made man and woman to be in one relationship for one lifetime. And then at the end of his life, he goes into the temple. And this thing in Jesus' day is the same thing that was happening in Nehemiah's day. Money changers were coming in, people that were selling goods. It was basically kind of like Disney World where everyone jacks up the prices and says, sorry, you can't eat here, buy this. And then Jesus walks in in that moment, takes a whip and starts clearing the temple. And at that moment, the Pharisees say, we got to take this guy down. Because the reason is you don't beat, crucify, and kill Mr. Rogers or the dude from Blue's Clues, right? You know Blue's Clues guy? He's really sweet. Like, let's go find clues. Like, okay, I'm not, I don't care about that guy. But you start pressing in on issues that matter to people, you get a negative response. But if you're going to change, you need people that are going to hold you accountable. I do. You do. Proverbs says it this way, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. You know how you make a, a beautiful sword, a sharp sword? You take raw ore and you heat it. You stick it into a flame until it gets red hot. And then you pull it out of that flame and then you get a hammer and you start beating on that iron until it gets into a form that you like. And then you're not even done. You take it back into the flame, heat it back up, beat it some more, and then you bring it out to a, gr- a wheel grinder. And you get that wheel spinning and then you start shaving off all of the hard and rough 
edges. If you want to be changed to be look like the, the people that God wants, you need people around you that love you too much to leave you as you are. They will step in and grate on you. And you'll go, dude, what's your problem? And if you've got a good buddy, a good girlfriend, they'll say, it's because I love you. I remember when this happened to me. When I was first working here at Grace, Zach Nigliazzo stepped in on me. I was young, opinionated, and surely it needed to be heard, right? And I had ended up causing some tension in our organization. And he sat me down one time in a gentle way. He says, Kevin, you know we're all trying to do the same thing here. I know, but I'm doing it my way. He's like, yeah, yeah, I know. You're causing tension. You need to change. And I was so thankful that he had loved me enough to put his finger on a pain point on me so that I could change. And lastly, and fifthly, Nehemiah poured his life out. At the end of Nehemiah, chapter 13, verse 30 and 31, Nehemiah says it this way. Thus I cleanse them from every foreign, everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and the Levites, each to his work. And I provided for the wood offering and appointed times and set for their first fruits. And then he ends it this way. Remember me, O God, for good. That's how he signs off his letter. That's how he signs off his life. God, remember me for good. He poured out his life. He gave it all, all the way to the end. Anyone watching the NBA Finals? Anyone? One or two? So my team, who I've been personally disappointed with this year, is the Houston Rockets. I grew up in the Houston area, so I love uh, the Houston Rockets. And they were playing the Golden State Warriors. And there was one moment when James Harden hit the winning shot to go to another to, to extend the series. It was an awesome shot. It was absolutely amazing. And he's a very, very talented player. But if you've been following the team all season, you see that, that the talent isn't loved by everyone. And there's some tension within the overall organization and all these rumors spinning around it. And, and people from the outside are going, well, you just need to ease up on them. But you don't see that same tension in other organizations like the Warriors, like the Spurs. You see this tension, this conflict. He hits the game winner and he walks over to his bench and he sees this. You can go watch the vine. He hits it, and all of his players kind of go, it's like you're extending this. But it's so tragic. They're playing for the NBA championships. Like, this is to go and, and maybe contribute, maybe do something great, maybe hoist that trophy, and he just helped them extend their lifespan to, to chase the goal that they were all chasing together. And as soon as he hits a shot to get the team to go to the next level, they're going, I guess this has extended. Great. They're checked out. They're completely checked out. Let me ask you, seniors, people graduating, are you poured out or are you checked out? Are you poured out or are you checked out? Have you poured out your life in the few moments you have? Are you checked out, just ready for the next thing? Even as you're ending this semester, this year, are you poured out or are you checked out? 
There's one little quote that I've heard for a long, long time, and it says this. I heard it when I was in college. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done through Christ will last. There's only two things in life that will last for eternity. The word of God, the Bible in your hand, and the souls of men, the person sitting next to you. And we have these few days to invest our lives, to pour ourselves out into the things that matter most. And that's exactly what Nehemiah did. To pour himself out for the word of God and people. And I tell you what, it can be hard. Because school projects can sometimes feel meaningless and pointless, especially at this point in the semester, right? And sometimes some of the jobs that you guys are working right now, struggling through college, can feel like dead-end jobs that are death to you. I had one of those college jobs. I get it. But you have a few moments to pour yourself out into the things that matter most to God. And if you're around people, you get to join in with what God is trying to do in the world, which is call people to himself. 1 Corinthians 15.58 says it this way, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This morning I preached my last youth sermon to the youth ministry that I've been a part of for 10 years. I led it for seven. And I stood in front of those little faces of junior high and high school students. And I said, when I was offered the position to come here to do college ministry, I got it in my mind in that moment that I will not check out. I will pour myself out to you. And I will let my staff hold me accountable to it. I let my leaders hold me accountable to it. And kids can tell if you're checked out. They can see it. And I said, I want to give everything I can to make this the best end to a great season. And as I walked off stage, I had kid after kid come up to me and just hug me and say, thank you so much for what you've done. I didn't cry there, but apparently I'm crying here. Okay. Because when you pour yourself out, you will never be disappointed with the results. Paul signed off to the end of his, of his life. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but all who love his appearing. Johann Sebastian Bach signed off every one of his scores. Soli Deo Gloria. To God alone be the glory. Because I want my work to be poured out for his glory and our good. There are five pieces that we'd be a community that's organized, biblical, repentant, accountable, and poured out. And if we're in that type of community, we will be part of a community that changes the world. I pray for us. Lord, thank you so much for this morning. And thank you that you give us the opportunity to live a life like Nehemiah, to live a life like men and women long before us that cared about the things that mattered most and let those things hone them to be men and women used mightily by you. Lord, it is my desire that we would be that people. So Lord, I pray that you would encourage us and challenge us to be that people.
It's in your name we pray. Amen.